Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. I'm so excited to share the Word of God with you today. Um, You know, the older I get, the more I realize the importance of keeping one's promises. For example, one of Leah's promises and vows that she made to me on our wedding day was that she'd watch every single game of my favorite football team, which you all know is based in Washington, D.C. I'm not even going to say the name because people are going to throw snowballs at me or something. Um, (laughs) But uh, she promised she'd watch every game for the rest of her life, which meant a lot to me because I'd grown up uh, a fan ever since I was a little kid, but in her vow, she specifically said the name that the team was called at the time, which is a different name than what they're called now, right? And so you could say due to a technicality, she's already fulfilled her promise to me less than 10 years into marriage, right? And so um, now she just refuses uh, to like sit down and watch the games with me, primarily because she's realized after 10 years that they stink. They're no good, right? And so uh, she's always like, hey, I've already, you know, fulfilled my promise to you. I'm done with that, right? And she really has, right? Uh, I think my team has put her through enough misery in life. But uh, we all know that keeping promises, delivering on promise, whether big or small, is super important because it's uh, vital in building trust in a relationship, right? And so the basis of trust can either be gained or lost uh, on the mere fact of whether that person delivers on their promises or not. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be seeing how delivering on promises, specifically how God does this for us, uh, is is, uh, so important. And so that's what our Bible passage today is going to be focused on. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the book of Isaiah, where we've been seeing God through the lens of being a servant for his people, right? And so in our main passage, we're going to see how God serves his people by making good on his word, by delivering on his promises, by keeping his promises. And so in our main passage of Isaiah chapter 44 today, uh, we're going to see how God is addressing his people. And the main point that he's trying to get across to them is that he's incomparable, right? He's incomparable to all other gods, specifically when it comes to promise keeping, right? And so there's no other person, no other thing that can even come close to him in this department, right? No challenger can contest him, right? But absurdly, people that create idols, these idol makers, uh, believe that the idols that they've created can equally deliver on their promises as well. And so this seems to be comical to God, right? And so all of this is going on in our main passage of Isaiah 44 today. And so with that brief context in mind, uh, this is the main thing I want you to walk away with today. This is what I want you to remember, is that we can trust our God who delivers on his promises, unlike our idols who fail to deliver on their promises to us. I'll repeat it again for those who are note takers, and this is the main thing I want sticking with. We can trust our God who delivers on his promises, unlike our idols, who fail to deliver on their 
promises to us. And so this chapter is going to show us the battle between the promises of God versus the promises of idols, what God can deliver versus what idols can deliver. And so the first thing we see in our passage today is that God delivers on his promises. God delivers on his promises. Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 8, and we're going to be going through most of this chapter today, but let's first start off with the first eight verses. It says, And now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord, your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now listen to his promises here. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will sprout among the grass like poplars by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will use the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and take on the name of Israel. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies, says. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who like me can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me, since I've established an ancient people. Let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no rock. I do not know any. So there's a lot going on here, but in verses 1 through 2 of, um, of our passage, we see that God is addressing his people, and he reminds them that he's their creator. He's their maker, and therefore his people are his servants. He calls them Jacob, my servant, over and over again, right? This is what they are in relation to him, right? This, and it's a beautiful blessing to have this type of relationship with God because he's chosen them to be his people, right? And he also serves as their helper and comforter in their times of need. And then in verses 3 through 5, we see that God promises to pour out his Holy Spirit, his life-giving spirit on his people. His spirit is going to dwell in his people one day, right? And therefore, they're going to prosper spiritually and grow abundantly. That's the imagery that's going on there. Then finally, in verses 6 through 8, we see that because of what God promises to do for his people, he is a God who is worth serving. He's a God who is worth placing their faith and trust in because there is no other God like him. He says, there's no other God like me. I'm incomparable, right? Later on then in scripture, we do see that this promise of his Holy Spirit dwelling in his people actually comes to fruition for all those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus said so in John 7, 38, where he said that for all those who believe in me, as scripture says, they will have uh, streams of living water flowing deep within that, right? And so the wording there in John 7, 38 is so similar to our verses of 3 and 5 of Isaiah 44. So overall, in verses 1 through 8, we see how God promises spiritual blessings on his people. 
that actually comes to fruition later on in Scripture through Jesus, who grants his Holy Spirit to all those who believe, trust, and serve him, right? And so his Holy Spirit helps us fight off our sinful fleshly desires, right? And helps us grow and awakens our our, uh, love and affections for Jesus more and more each day. And so this God who promises things to his people, and later on in scripture, we see that he delivers on his promises, grants his Holy Spirit to his, to his people so that they can grow spiritually and prosper abundantly, right? This God who keeps his promises, who, de- who delivers on his promises in verse 1 through 8, is seen in stark contrast to the idols and their empty promises in verses 9 through 20. And so the main point we're going to see in the ensuing verses of 9 through 20 is this, is that idols fail to deliver on their promises. Idols fail to deliver on their promises. But before we get to the following verses, it's important to know that idolatry is not just this ancient practice that was done in biblical times. No, idolatry is still rampant in the modern day. We all commit idolatry in several different ways because that's what our sinful hearts tend to do. As John Calvin famously said, he said, our hearts are a factory of idols. They're a factory of idols. So we love to create idols for ourselves, right? Because it's easy for us to place our faith and trust in created things rather than the creator for our hope, our happiness, our significance, and security in life. In fact, the way that we live our lives reveals our idols, right? And so idolatry is not just this ancient practice of of carving graven images and bowing down to worship. No, we too, just like the idol worshipers, we're going to see it in, in Isaiah 44, we too tend to seek life in created things and worship them too. I love this quote that, um, of what an idol is by Tim Keller. He says this, he says, what is an idol? Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And what we see here is that idols aren't necessarily bad things. He says they could be anything, even good things that we elevate uh, into God's or put in the place of God, right? And so we often tend to make idols out of uh Anything from money, fame, power, sex, religion, politics, sports, and so forth, right? And so what each of these idols do is that they promise us things. They promise us things. And so in the ensuing verses of 9 through 20, we're going to see the specific promises that these idols make to us, all right? And the first thing we see here is that idols promise us treasures. Idols promise us treasures. Let's look at verse 9 through 11 of Isaiah 44. 9 through 11 says, All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Who makes a god or casts a metal image that benefits no one? Look, all its worshipers will be put to shame, and the craftsmen are humans. They all will assemble and stand. They all will be startled and put to shame. And so now as God shifts the focus onto idols and their makers, he specifically describes how these idols, um, how these idol makers treasure their idols. 
They've elevated them so much in their heart that they actually start finding their worth and value in these idols. But because these idols aren't worth anything and don't have any value, they can't actually provide that to anyone, right? And so God ridicules how easily these idols have become so central and essential to uh, their idol makers' lives, right? And so what he says is they're going to be put to shame for placing their faith and trust in created things rather than the creator. And so this reminds me of another helpful Tim Keller quote. I'm just going to read the whole book because it's amazing, right? Uh, But this uh, next quote of Tim Keller is uh, very clutch. It says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So your greatest treasure is found in what you value the most in this life as Keller would say, what's so central and essential to your life. See, our treasure is what we feel like we can't live without, right? It's what we can't live without. And so without that treasure, we lose our sense of worth, value, significance, security, and purpose, right? So let me ask you this. What's your greatest treasure? What's your greatest treasure? What can't you live without? For example, this reminds me of a song that Bruno Mars wrote in 2013 called Treasure. Uh, the worship team plans on singing it after the sermon for us, uh, demonstration. They're like, what? Um, <laughs> but the main point of this song is a declaration of love towards a spouse and significant other of, uh, who is of great value and importance, right? And so that sounds fine at first, right? But the more you listen to this song, the more you realize that there's a, a hyper focus on the thought that without this person, your life would be meaningless and purposeless, right? And I think this song highlights and reflects our, our natural human inclination to easily make good things into ultimate things. We make good things into ultimate things, right? And so we elevate them into our treasure where we put all of our sense of hope and and meaning and significance in life, right? Into that thing. But anything outside of God being our primary treasure in life, uh, we're going to soon see that it's not, we're not going to reap the benefits of what that thing promises us, right? As God says, you're going to be put to shame. You're going to be embarrassed for placing your faith and trust in that. And I love how verse 9 of Isaiah 44 blatantly says that our idols benefit no one, right? Essentially, they are worthless. Why are they worthless? Because they can't deliver on their promises, right? They can't provide us the worth and value that we seek in that. And so no treasure in this world is worth placing all of our sense of hope and security in because it's all fleeting and temporal. No person, place, or thing is worth placing our faith and trust in fully, right? Only God, who should be our greatest treasure, has eternal worth and value because he transcends all happiness that uh, this life, this, our limited time in this world can provide for us, right? So only he is worthy and only he is, uh, is worth putting our faith and trust in. Only he is worth serving, right? 
And so although idols promise us treasures, they fail to deliver them because they aren't worth anything in comparison to our God who is worthy of all glory, honor, and riches, and so forth, right? And so that's the first thing that our idols promise us. They promise us treasures, right? Second thing that idols promise us is they promise us salvation. Idols promise us salvation. Let's continue reading verses 12 through 17. It says, the iron worker labors over the coals, shapes the idol with hammers, and works it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line and he outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human form, like a beautiful person to dwell in a temple. He cuts down cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire and he roasts meat uh, on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I see the blaze. Look at verse 17. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it. Save me for you are my God. So in these verses, we're taken into an idol maker's factory. And so the tools, the materials and idol making process are all outlined here. They're all described here. And what we see is that um, all of these idol makers create a God using their own imagination. And so not only do they make a God, but they also make a God according to however they want him to be like, right? And so in the end, they bow down to it and worship it. And they say, save me for you are my God, as we see at the end of verse 17, which describes and demonstrates the, the belief that somehow these, these idols can save us, right? But that's exactly what our idols promise us. They promise us salvation. And when we believe that they can actually provide us that, then we are going to place our faith and trust in those things. We are going to rely on those things. But anything other than God that we rely on to save us is considered to be a functional savior. Another term for idols and uh, for, uh, for idols and counterfeit gods, right? Uh, but um, there's a specific thing about this term uh, uh, of a functional savior that I like uh, that it describes specifically what, a, uh, what it does for us, what an idol does for us. And so uh, Jerry Bridges has a fantastic quote that helps kind of uh, give clarity on this. He says, sometimes we look to uh, other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, security, and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. And so they preoccupy our minds and consume our time and resources, and they make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. And whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them. So notice that it says that when we place our faith in this uh, functional savior, 
that it somehow makes us feel righteous. And that's super important in understanding what a functional Savior does to us, right? For example, my... Um, my mom grew up going to Catholic Mass every Sunday um, with her family. And so because of this, she believed that she was a good Catholic and in right standing with God, even though um, she would fall asleep in every Mass service. And so um, even though she didn't know it at the time, that was her functional Savior, going to Mass, right? Um, but the older she got, you know, she um, stopped attending, right? And then it wasn't until she was an adult and um, shortly after we came to faith in the Lord, the whole family, and um, all became Christians that we realized the importance of going into, uh, getting plugged into a solid Bible teaching church. And so my mom um, happened to, uh, because, you know, she wanted to attend church regularly, uh, but didn't want to fall asleep in service, she happened to find a Spanish Pentecostal uh, church nearby. And if you know anything about Spanish Pentecostal churches, you're going to uh, know really, really quick that you're never, ever, ever, ever going to fall asleep in service. And if you happen to like doze off, right, you're going to get a tambourine thrown at your head. Like it is wild, wild stuff, guys. Um, I'll send you guys like a video of me back in the day throwing tambourines at me. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but my mom realized here that it's not what we do for the Lord that saves us. It's what the Lord has done for us. And so, for example, attending church, um, it's a good thing that the Lord commands us to do. It's good for us to be in community with one another and worshiping corporately, Right. But it shouldn't ever become an ultimate thing for us where because we do that, because we attend church, we are saved, right? That we find our sense of security and salvation in that thing, right? And so my mom realized it's not attending church that saves you. It's Jesus that saves. Only he can save. And so let me ask you this. Who or what do you rely on to save you? Who or what do you rely on to save you? Is it religion? Is it good morals, good works, being a good person? I hear that often. I'm a good person. Or is it Jesus? See, even though idols promise us salvation, they fail to deliver that salvation because they can't save. They can't save. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus saves. So not only do they promise us treasures and salvation, the final thing we see here is that they promise us transformation. Idols promise us transformation. Let's look at verse 18 through 20 of chapter 44. Isaiah 44, verse 18 through 20. Keep on reading this text. It says, such people do not comprehend and cannot understand. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their minds so they cannot understand. No one comes to his senses. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Should I make something detestable with the rest of it? Should I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray, and he cannot rescue himself or say, isn't there a lie in my right hand? And so what we see in these verses is that these idol makers start to become like their idols. They start to resemble them, right? And so similarly to their idols, they have eyes 
but cannot see. They have minds, but they cannot understand. And so this change happens over time and has very evident and devastating effects to their actions and thoughts. And so they become so blind and desperate for something to satisfy their empty hearts. And so transformation does happen for an idol worshiper, right? But instead of change that leads and change and transformation that leads to something that is life-giving and, and that is for renewal, the only change that happens to an idol worshiper is change that leads to death and destruction. And so even though idols promise us that we're going to feel new, that we're going to feel different, that we're going to feel fulfilled and we're going to be satisfied, they can't deliver those things on a permanent basis. But what actually ends up happening is that we become what we worship. We become image bearers of the, uh, of the counterfeit gods and the idols that we worship. And we start resembling them as well. And so we start to feel empty and lifeless. So let me ask you this. What are you becoming? What are you becoming? What am I becoming? The answer is found in what you're worshiping. What's captured your all? What's captured your heart's attention? If you're like, Pastor Ricky, you know, like my addiction or my functional savior that I've identified, um, you know, that's like separate. That doesn't affect my walk with the Lord and my relationship with him. No, no, no. There's no neutral ground here. Like it's we're worshiping God of the Bible or an idol, right? And the reality is that we are becoming what we are worshiping, whether we realize it or not. Author Mike Cosper has a great quote about the severity of this, of that there's no neutral ground. He says, worship is always a war. That's the severity of it. It's always a war. The declaration that there is one God, that his name is Jesus, and that he's died, risen, and will come again is an all-out assault on the saviors extended at every level of culture around us. And I would add also all of the saviors that are tugging at our, our heartstrings, right, that are promising us things. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has restored our worship to where it rightfully belongs, back to God, right? And so the Holy Spirit that is promised to us in Isaiah 44, and that we see later on is granted to all those who believe, trust, and have their faith in Jesus Christ, that same Holy Spirit helps us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the more we worship God, the more we become like our God. And so although idols promise us life-giving transformation, they fail to deliver that because they can't provide the transformations that our, heart, that, that our heart truly needs and is truly seeking. That's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to recap what we've learned today, our main idea was that we can trust our God who delivers on his promises, unlike our idols who fail to deliver on their promises to us. And so we've seen that they promise us treasures, salvation, and life-giving transformation, but they fail to do all of that. They fail to deliver on all those promises. But in the gospel, 
We see that, Jesus, that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So that means that, uh, that only Jesus is worthy of being treasured, that only Jesus saves, and only Jesus can provide the life-giving transformation that our hearts truly, truly need. So how can we keep God at the center of our hearts rather than our idols? What should we do about this, right? Let's answer the gospel call. Answer the gospel call. There's three simple things that are uh, that we're called to do in the ensuing verses 21 through 23. And the first thing we're called to is we are called to remember. We are called to remember. Look at verse 21. It says, remember these things, Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, Israel. You will never be forgotten by me. And so we need to remember who we are in relation to God. He is the creator. We are his creation designed to live for and to serve him. That's where true life is found, right? But when we forget who we are in relation to God, we're going to establish ourselves as gods. And we're going to look, look to counterfeit gods for help. And so remember, he is the creator and you are not, Right? Second thing we're called to is we are called to repent. We're called to repent. Look at verse 22. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. And so we need to confess our sin of worshiping created things rather than the creator. And so we turn away from our idols and we return to the Lord. Called to repent. Finally, we are called to rejoice. Look at verse 23. We're called to rejoice. It says, rejoice heavens for the Lord has acted. Shout depths of the earth. Break out into singing mountains, forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorifies himself through Israel. So we get to partake in the cosmic story of redemption that the Lord is doing and will one day bring to completion where all creation will worship him. Every knee will bow down. Every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. And so he's going to be the only God left standing amongst all these other counterfeits. And so that is a cause for joy. So because God delivers on his promises, let's respond to his good call for us today. Because when we respond to his call, that's when we start smashing our idols, start bashing them, right? Because his Holy Spirit reminds us that he's at the center of our hearts, that God should be at the center of our hearts. And he reminds us that only God is, is worth placing our faith in. Only God is worth placing our trust in. And only God is worth serving. Amen? The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q dot org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.